I, I think what, what young people should focus on is what young people have focused on for centuries before the modern fiat era. Go make something of yourself, right? Go make things for people, right? Like make a good or service that the market wants. Provide value. That's what you should be thinking about. Okay, how can I? And, you know, everyone's different. You know, you, you have different uh, uh, skills and abilities. And what, what you can provide is probably not what the person next to you can provide. But that's your advantage. And that's, that's what you ought to be Welcome to another episode of Light with Bitcoin, where we delve into the human side of Bitcoin by chatting with one Bitcoiner at a time to discuss their life, stories, personal growth, and challenges through the lens of Bitcoin. I'm your host, Vivian Chain, and thanks for tuning in. Today, the guest who's joining us is Jimmy Son, uh, who has just launched his fifth Bitcoin book, um, Fiat Rules Everything. I have this in my hand. Yeah. Um, Jimmy is one of the Bitcoin OG who has been an active contributor in the ecosystem across um, technicality and culture. Uh, Jimmy, congratulations on the book launch and uh, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of crazy that uh, like you were reminding me that it's like my fifth book. You know, you don't you don't set out to become like an author of five books. You just sort of do one at a time, and the next thing you know, you have a bunch. So, um, really uh, excited to be talking here with you about this book, and uh, and yeah, thanks again for having me. You are for sure one of the staple um, content creator in the space, and uh, you struck me as a um, magician of a kind because <laughs> I remember I I had this memory of you where we first met in Miami. We talked about orange peeling, like different people with different messaging, mm -hmm. and you had this backpack and you were holding a um, one of the book Bitcoiner, a uh, Bitcoin and the American Dream in your hand, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, uh, at one point, the the uh, conversation diverged into you know how how do we talk to religious people mm -hmm. about Bitcoin, and then you just put down your backpack and pull out another book, um, <laughs> and you're like, this is why I wrote Thank God for Bitcoin. I was like, wow. Uh, so I didn't I didn't imagine a day at a t at the time where we'll be um, we'll be talking about your new book, but here we are. So thanks for taking the time. Uh, let's make the most of this discussion. Yeah, and uh, you know that 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 was pretty fun because I I had written a few books by that point, and uh, and honestly, th this book is similar in that it's aimed at a particular audience, right? Uh, we we were talking about Bitcoin and the American Dream, and that was aimed towards regulators, politicians, people that were into politics that wanted to know it from a political angle. And I wrote Thank God for Bitcoin from more of a Christian perspective for, um, you know, a large number of Christians around the world that wanted to, you know, kind of understand what Bitcoin is all about from a moral and spiritual perspective. Um, and this one is uh, is different in the sense that this this is not aimed at people that don't know about Bitcoin. This is aimed at people that do. It's it's specifically for people that already know about Bitcoin, have an idea that fiat money is sort of doing bad things to this world, but really don't understand how deep that rabbit hole goes. And what this book is, is an exploration of all the ways in which fiat money ruins all sorts of incentives at different levels. 
Right, we'll be talking all about all about that. And I'll let with Bitcoin, what we're interested in is in the human side of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy, you've been in the space for long enough that mm -hmm. people rarely ask you about how did you get into this anymore? <laughs> they get you on the show for technicalities and culture. But um, for the new generation of Bitcoiners who are watching this, let's um, go back a little bit mm -hmm. and start with your personal journey with Bitcoin. So um, how, how was life before Bitcoin for you? What, 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 what happened? Yeah, so I, I've been a programmer for a very long time. I, I like to tell people I started at nine years old when my dad got me a computer from Toys R Us, right? And that, that was like the first computer Is that a I real had. computer? Yeah, it, was, it was a Commodore 16. Uh, if, you, if you've heard of Commodores at all, you probably heard of the Commodore 64, or the Commodore 128, both of which had amazing games. Commodore 16, on the other hand, had three games. Two of them were text-based, and me being a new immigrant to the United States, didn't couldn't really play the text games very much because I didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, but the other game was, uh, you know, fun and I kind of got bored of it at a certain point and I started programming in it because that was about the only other thing you could do on a computer back then. So uh, that's how I got my start in programming. And after I graduated college, I went to a startup in Boston. I was a programmer there um, and I, I did something like uh, I, I want to say like 12 startups in 10 years or something like that where, you know, I, I, I did a lot of different things for a lot of different startups. And I, I got to know a lot of the stack on the web, you know, that that was just coming up when when, uh, when I got out of college. I got out of college in 98. So, you know, um, I, I grew up with uh, the web and working on it and the internet and everything else. So, um, you know, when I encountered it for the encountered Bitcoin for the first time, it was 2011 and I was working for a startup. I was, I think, one of three people at the startup, right? It, that That's how small it was. Uh, and I was the only technical guy. And I was reading a an article um, as most uh most people do if you're if you're technical, you just sort of keep up with the trends and see what's hot and what's not or whatever. Um, and at the time, the the website that I went to was a place called Slashdot, and it's kind of a nerdy tech geek website. Uh, I think um, you know I mean, it, it exists today, but it, it was way more popular back then. And uh, you know, tagline for that uh, website is news for nerds, important stuff, something like that. And so it was it was exactly for me, right, because I, I keep up with all of that stuff. And, you know, the the stories on there, for example, are about, OK, here's a new Linux distro. Here's a review of the newest iPhone or, you know, here's. Um, you know, uh, you know, Ruby on Rails is getting like a new version or something like that. Like it's it's stuff that most people don't find interesting, but nerds like me do. Um, and so the uh, in February of 2011, I still remember seeing the headline uh, on one of these stories. And, you know, there's like, you know, 20, 30 stories that come through per day. Um, and it was Internet only currency. Bitcoin has reached dollar parity. That was the title. And I was confused because I didn't know what Bitcoin was. And just to show you, uh, you know, kind of give you an indication of how far ago this was, 
the word Bitcoin was spelled with both a capital B and a capital C, like camel case, like B-I-T-C-O-I-N. And so like clearly they didn't know that much about it either or whoever, whoever the headline writer. Um, and I, I started looking into it. I'm like, what is this Internet only currency? What does it mean that it's reached dollar parity? What, what, what's going on? So I, I looked into it and I found that it had a 21 million limit. That was like one of the few pieces of information that I could glean from a Google search. And I was like, huh, this could actually work. And, you know, I, I was a math major in college, so I, I kind of had an idea of the math behind of it, behind it. So, you know, um, there's sort of some misconception that programmers all know about cryptography. Actually, not that many do, unless you happen to have something of a math background. Because cryptography is actually pretty difficult and, and learning about it. So when, when I read that, uh, read about Bitcoin, I kind of had a rough idea of how everything would work based on what I knew of public key cryptography and things like that. So and I had um, some background with uh, Austrian economics from 2008 and the financial crisis that happened then. So when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, it made sense to me. It was like, OK, this could be the currency that's actually outside of government control. This could be something that's actually like works on the internet is natively digital. Um, and th this could really be something really cool if, if everything works as advertised. Now, I, I didn't examine the code or anything, so I had no idea. But I did, I, I do remember thinking to myself, okay, if this thing catches on, then I better be one of the first people to buy and not one of the last. That was the thought in my mind. And I remember going home to my wife that day and telling her about it and saying, uh, you know, I think I, I, I read about this thing called Bitcoin and it's internet only. And she was like, uh, Jimmy, I, I think that's a scam. <laughs> so I, I don't know about this. And that that's the that's the reaction most normal people had. In fact, I I ended up like trying to talk about it to like ten different people like over the next week. And you know, I worked at a startup incubator, so there were plenty of startupy people to talk to. None of them were interested. They thought it was stupid, right? Like they were like, well, how can that possibly work? And I, like, and I tried to explain it, but I didn't know enough. Um, but that that's how I had my first contact with Bitcoin was when it had reached dollar parity, meaning that it had just broken $1. It seems like you were already very convicted. Mm -hmm. What about it? Like, was it the technicality of it or the, the idea of it? Like what made you so convinced? So fast. Well, yeah. So have it, I, I think uh, this is the part where my Austrian economics, like having studied that really came into play because there were lots of technical people that I knew that I, I would be like, yeah, this is probably how it works. And they're like, ah, it's stupid. It's not going to it's not going to do anything right? like that, that. That's the normal reaction of a lot of uh, technical people because they don't really understand economics. And the only reason I understood it was because of 2008. I, I still remember that, you know, um, I think Barack Obama was running against John McCain. And then we had like this existential economic crisis. And I, I remember them coming on TV, say, uh, you know, George Bush coming on TV saying like, yeah, we, uh, we need to bail out these banks and it's going to cost like $800 billion. 
And that that number back then was just an unreal number. Now, nowadays, like eight hundred billion, ah, whatever. That's like less than the <laughs> less than the market cap of Apple, like or less than half the market cap of Apple. Back then, it was like eight hundred billion. Not, it, that's like an unreal number, right? I, I I don't know if you remember, like, uh, if you've watched like Austin Powers, like the original one, but you know they're like. Okay, one million dollars, and they all laugh at him. It's like that's so little. And it's like one hundred billion dollars, and they start taking him serious. That that movie has not like it's now so dated. Like one hundred billion dollars, ah, that's nothing. We pay Doctor Evil off in a second because of that. And eight hundred billion at that time was just kind of that unreal number back then. Um, and it, it it caused me to go down this rabbit hole of what the heck is happening how can this number be real right like 800 billion dollars really that's like an insane amount of money how is this possibly real and that that led me down this rabbit hole of learning about the fed learning about austrian economics like what what how money comes into existence and things like that now i i've studied a lot more of that since then but that planted the seed of okay like the money that the $800 billion didn't come from taxes. It came through money printing. They just created it. And that was sort of like the big aha moment for me. I was like, wow, this, this, this thing can't last. <laughs> like, how can you possibly run anything for any significant amount of time uh, on a system like this? And like later on, I found out. You know, you essentially export inflation to other countries and stuff like that. So in a sense, the world paid for the bailouts of 2008. Uh, but when I when I saw Bitcoin, everything fit into place because this was a money that had a strict 21 million limit. And that meant that it couldn't get corrupted in the same way. So like, you know, for a lot of, um, you know, libertarians and Austrian econom uh, economics people, you know, they came in and they were like, oh, the technology can't possibly work. And for a lot of technical people, they said, oh, you know, the, the economics can't possibly work. I happen to be in that intersection, very fortunately, of having some economics background and enough technical background to understand that, oh, this could actually work and had enough conviction in both those things to be able to say, okay, yeah, the, like this, this is something that could possibly be something significant going forward. Even mm -hmm. you were convinced by the idea at the very beginning, Techni mm -hmm. technically, how long did it take you to realize the robustness of the system? Because mm -hmm. it can sound like too good to be true. Right? Yeah, and, and it does sound time, too good to be true. It's like, how, how can they enforce that? And then I learned the math behind it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if you if you do have it every four years, then there's a strict limit on how many uh, um, how many can be issued and so on. Um, and it, it took some time, right? It, it, and this is... Um, true of any Bitcoiner that gets into the space like this, this like, you know, vision of people suddenly getting Bitcoin after like one conversation. That's not how it works, right? Like the people that actually get Bitcoin, 
takes some years, right? Even like uh, some of the people that get it the fastest, somebody like Russell Kung or Michael Saylor, they still studied it for like four months. And these are extremely smart people, right? Like extremely smart people. And it took them four months. You think your, your, your friend that doesn't have a PhD or memorize like playbooks all the time, like that they're going to get it in like uh, one, two hour conversation. I don't think so. Uh, so it, it did take me a while to really, um, sort of get it. And and back then there weren't resources like the Bitcoin standard or, you know, like all these books and stuff like that. There were like literally forum posts on Bitcoin talk and, a, and, a, and like, you know, Reddit, uh, a subreddit called our Bitcoin. And that, that was it. That was, that was where you went. And you had very little information. People, the, the economic theory of Bitcoin was completely un, undeveloped and, People didn't really know what it was for and stuff like that. And, and I had some ideas based on Austrian economics. But even with that, it, it took me a while to understand what it really was. And I, I don't think it was really until I read the Bitcoin standard. And, uh, you know, I, I'm friends with Safedean. Um, so he gave me like a, like a first draft to review and stuff. And uh, and that that was when I really started to get it. It's like, oh yeah, th this this is what it's actually really good for. Um, so it took me like five years, <laughs> like to to really understand. Okay, th this thing has the power to change the world, and you know you could kind of see it in the people that own it, right? Like the people that have been in Bitcoin for a long time, their entire lives change, right? Like they 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 start you know, getting married and having kids and eating better and getting better jobs and saving and uh, thinking about the future. Like it, it's a complete mentality shift because, you know, it, it's a savings vehicle that we have that we didn't have before. It's, it's amazing. But that that one little thing makes all the difference. So in hindsight, the day you went home to your wife and told her about Bitcoin, what you're really saying is that wife, I have Cracked a cold for life. I have done it. <laughs> we just follow this. We just follow this path, and you know, we've 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 cracked it. Um, this is uh, what you're really saying at the time. Uh, yeah, it, I I wish I could say that. No, I it, it, like I uh, I remember telling her about it because you know she's my wife and we talk about everything, right? It's like what what interesting thing happened to her? Oh, I learned the, I I learned about this thing called Bitcoin. It's like Bitcoin. What is it? But I mean, back then it it really was sort of like. I, I consider myself very fortunate for encountering it with the uh, sort of mentality that I had, like uh, both technical and economic, because for most people, they're missing one of the two. And if if you don't get one of the two, then you don't really get it. You either think of it as like a technological plaything, which unfortunately still a lot of people think of it today, or you think of it as something that can't possibly work because you don't understand the technical aspect, right? Like there, there's, a, there's a monetary and economic aspect to Bitcoin that really, you know, need, uh, you, you really need to understand both to really get it. And even for somebody that kind of understood both aspects independently, it took a long time for me to really integrate them both into my worldview. For sure. And in your early days when you were into Bitcoin, did you anticipate something like the boom of cryptocurrency in general mm -hmm. and how how our, our eco space now evolved in a, in a place like mm -hmm. today? It's it's interesting because uh, at least when I first read about it, there there was no such thing as an altcoin, right? Like it, it literally did not exist 
until August of 2011. I, I, I first heard about it in February of 2011. And I still remember uh, sort of like looking at the forums and I think it was like 2012 or so. And uh, and there were people shilling this thing called Litecoin and Namecoin. I was like, what the heck are these things? And they're like, oh, it's a new cryptocurrency, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I kind of understood why they existed, right? And, uh, and if you study the history of all coins, you realize that they come at uh, like towards the end of bull markets. So um, middle of 2011 was when we had the very first Bitcoin bubble. It went uh, from about a dollar in February of 2011. Uh, and July that year, we got to $30 a Bitcoin. It was a, you know, that's a pretty big pump, like 15x. And then something happened on Mt. Gox and, you know, it crashed and, and things like that. But soon after that, after that July peak, you had, you know, your first set of altcoins, most of which people don't remember, right? Like Geist Guild and IX coin and things like that. Like no one's ever heard of these. Well, guess what? This what's happening to altcoins 10 years from now. No one's going to know what those are either. Um but that that that's how it was. So, in a sense, I when when I read that in 2012 about Litecoin and Namecoin and like people were trying to sell them and try trying to trade them because there really weren't uh, exchanges that did multiple coins. It was just Bitcoin back then. Uh, and you know, like people were going on the forum saying, you know, I'll trade you a thousand Litecoin for one Bitcoin or something like that. And people were taking like this is how you did trading back then. Um, I started to kind of get. Uh, that this this could become a thing that all coins uh, have all of the wrong incentives because you can make it out of you can make money out of nothing right like you can make something out of nothing and people love making something out of nothing right or like doing very little work and making lots of money this this is sort of like the goal for a lot of people so I had um, some sense that this could become something but. What I didn't expect was how popular they got because I knew their origins. It was just some guy like tweaking like three lines of code in Bitcoin Core and releasing it as if it's something new. I, I didn't think that was enough, right? Like it's okay, you're not improving on anything. How, how can you possibly want to buy this thing that is clearly inferior and a complete copycat? Um, what I didn't uh, realize back then, I think, was that, you know, people are really not rational or technical. What, what they want to do is they want they want something to work almost a, a, as like a willpower thing. It's like, OK, mm -hmm. if I buy this and I put enough energy into it, then maybe maybe it'll it'll get to the price that I think it will. And that's their hope. The technical stuff doesn't matter. Reality doesn't matter. The the copycat nature doesn't matter. The open source nature doesn't matter. The fact that anyone can clone it at any time, that anyone can steal your stuff at any time, none of that matters if there's possibility that you might make lots of money. And I, and I should have re realized this because lots of people gamble too, right? Like they, they go into a casino fully knowing that the odds are stacked against you. But they go and do it anyway. And this is the same instinct that's driving a lot of altcoins is, okay, might win, might lose, but it's fun to play. And that's, that's essentially what they're using it as.
Yeah, there's a lot of wishful thinking involved for sure. And yeah. I was uh, doing research for this episode and saw you had some rather disturbing incidents regarding a couple of regrettable Bitcoin purchases. So, um, you once <laughs> <laughs> so you once bought about a hundred dollar worth of beef jerky with Bitcoin back in mm -hmm. 2013 for mm -hmm. uh, a quarter of a Bitcoin, and mm -hmm. you said it's good beef jerky but not that good. So. Yeah. Till today, um, <laughs> we see we see this debate between huddling versus spending a Bitcoin and replace. Mm -hmm. Like, which team are you on? Oh, holding, holding, uh, like by by far, because we've tried the spending path before, uh, like like the story with the beef jerky, and that wasn't the only thing, by the way. I bought like yeah. a sewing machine from um, I, f I forget what what was that like. It was kind of like a competitor to Amazon, but they decided to take Bitcoin for like a year or something. I can't remember the name of it, but I bought a sewing machine because my wife wanted a sewing machine. I was like, ah, you know what? I'm going to buy it with Bitcoin. Cost like a hundred dollars. Um, and I don't know, it was, it was when Bitcoin was like at 300. So it cost me like a third of a Bitcoin for a sewing machine. Right. It, it, it was like looking back, those were terrible purchases. <laughs> and there were, there were people that bought alpaca socks for like six Bitcoin, right? Like the, this was when like, you know, Bitcoin was like two bucks or something. And um, the the thing about spending is that it, it almost never ends up benefiting the ecosystem. Uh, you know, we, we had a bunch of companies accepting Bitcoin. We had Expedia at one point, um, that that store there were several online stores dell took bitcoin stuff like that but what what we find with all of them is that first of all these companies are not keeping the bitcoin <laughs> they they don't want to hold so they just sell it into the market so you congratulations just you've you've sold into the market for you know something and like you're you're not you're you're causing sell pressure on the currency um the, the other thing was, you know, these companies would integrate it, you know, they, they'd maybe go talk to BitPay or somebody like that. And OK, now you can pay with Bitcoin. And then they get maybe a slight surge at the beginning when they announce it of, uh, of sales. And then two months later, just nobody is buying with Bitcoin. Right. And it doesn't make any sense for these companies to do it either. It doesn't make sense for the consumer because it's an appreciating asset. And it's uh, it's it's largely a store of value. We have lots of things that let you pay for things online, right? You not only have credit cards, you have PayPal and Google Pay and Apple Pay and Cash App and Venmo and you know, like there there. And if you're in another country, you know, you got Octopus Card and M-Pesa and uh, you know, like just there. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, like payments is not something that needs to be solved for most people in the first world. Now, developing world, I get, right? Like El Salvador, I get, you know, there, there aren't visas and MasterCards and uh, American Express and Cash App and, uh, you know, PayPal. They're, they're not going in there getting those customers, right? They, they don't uh, provide enough revenue to justify going into those places. So Bitcoin has a place as sort of like a transactional currency there. But for most people, the thing that's lacking is a good savings technology, a place to store their wealth and not worry about it. Right. But I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Uh -huh. What about um, if, if a merchant accepts Bitcoin in their store and when mm -hmm. normies and pre-coiners come in the store and they say, oh, you accept Bitcoin, like, does it serve as a cultural purpose of introducing people about it with mere exposure? 
Uh, see, I, I, I don't think that's how adoption happens. Uh, and we uh, and I mentioned it earlier where, you know, it takes people years, right? It takes a lot of study. Just just because you saw a Bitcoin logo four times does not make you into a Bitcoiner. That is not how people's beliefs work. Uh, and and th this is the big mistake that a lot of marketing people make. They think everything is just like branding, that if you expose somebody to uh, something enough times that they'll automatically get uh, become like hardcore Bitcoin maximalists or something. And that is not how things work, right? Like that is not how things work. You see, you have to see the benefits of it. You have to see you, it has to solve a real problem and so on. It's not pure marketing. I mean, marketing helps. But it, it only goes so far and it maybe maybe it gets somebody curious, but unless they do the work of actually understanding what it is and how it works and why why it matters to them, they're not going to become Bitcoiners. I'm sorry. That's just not how like you don't you don't get to sprinkle magical fairy dust and suddenly people like get it over a two hour conversation. That's not how it works. And it's not it's and it's certainly not through like a couple of Bitcoin stickers on a retail place or something like that. Or, you know, Bitcoin accepted here. OK, well, whatever. Like, I mean, who cares? Like it, that that's not enough to get you to become a Bitcoiner. You need to do the work yourself. And this is this is the big mistake a lot of the marketing types make. That's true. And that's a very that's a fresh perspective. Basically, you're saying on an individual level, people should spend weaker currencies, which is fiat, <laughs> and then save save Bitcoin, the, the strong currency because it's appreciating. So it's, it's definitely that can I can totally see that. And mm -hmm. now it's a perfect point. We transition to the next phase where we talk about fiat. Uh, fiat ruins mm -hmm. everything. And um, good, good book. I read I read this this past week. We had very little time between <laughs> we set up this call and uh, today record. I was worried I wasn't able to finish everything, especially recently being traumatized by a sovereign individual reading how dense <laughs> that book is. Um, so I was a little bit worried, um, but uh, it's actually quite a page flipper. The the concepts are very nicely explained and without any jargons and the topics are very actually relevant and practical. Um, so let's talk about the book. Um, the book is titled Fiat Rules Everything. Um, could you give mm -hmm. us a brief overview of what readers can expect from this book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you for that review. And I would love it if you went on Amazon and said something because <laughs> that is so kind. I, I, I can't tell you how, as an author, when you hear something like that and you hear somebody else's perspective on your book and it's like, okay, like she actually got it. It's it's great. Um, so thank you for that. It's, it's very emotionally satisfying for me. Um, sec second, it, uh, the the book is really about fiat money, um, and it, it and the concept comes from um, this idea of Bitcoin fixes this, right? Like that's the name of my podcast, right? I, I I've said this a lot, and it's it's become a meme. And the more I thought about uh, fiat uh, or how Bitcoin fixes certain things, the more I realized it isn't that Bitcoin is just so amazing that it just causes all sorts of beautiful things to happen. I mean, it does, but it's not it's not a cure all for everything. It, it turns out that it's kind of like um, like changing your diet, right? Like uh, you might be eating a lot of sugar and you change your diet to, I don't know, being a keto person or something like that. And it isn't so much that the keto foods are so good for you, although they are. 
it's that you're removing a lot of stuff that's bad for you. And really, it's sugar is ruining your body and getting rid of sugar, like helps you become more healthy. Or, you know, alcohol is ruining your body and getting rid of alcohol helps you helps you. That's that's basically the the premise of the book. Fiat is the thing that's ruining a lot of things uh, at all kinds of levels. Uh, and, you know, at the individual level, at the corporate level, at the nation state level, at the global level, fiat money is ruining all kinds of things because it brings in very bad incentives. But, you know, you, you put in something else that's more sound and all of those incentives go away. So, a lot of a lot of this is sort of like letting your body heal on its own, right? Like it's just removing all of the stresses that are causing it to break down and instead letting it heal on your own uh, on its own. Fiat if you remove fiat from the equation, then a lot of society heals on its own because there there are certain you know trends and patterns that you see historically that have been completely flipped since we've gotten on fiat money and that's that's ultimately what I talk a lot about in the in the book. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Let's dive into some specifics about the book. And throughout the book, one of the repeating concepts um, is rent seeking. So can mm. you share with us what is rent seeking and elaborate a bit why it's problematic? Yeah. So rent seeking, the way I define it is uh, is sitting in the middle of some transaction, right? Like maybe you're paying for I don't know, tickets somewhere or whatever. And sitting in the middle of that transaction and saying, you know what, you can't do, complete this transaction until you get my permission, right? And it's, it's, it's that whole, uh, you know, that, that's where sort of the concept comes from is, okay, you, you want to do some transaction with somebody, but I'm going to sit in the middle and I'm going to require you to get my permission. Uh, and that person collects rent, right? Like collects money for not providing any value. And this happens in government bureaucracies all over the world where, you know, I want to go and, you know, trade this with somebody. And, well, uh, you need my permission first, right? And uh, and I'm going to tax you for it. And you, you need to uh, pay me first before you're allowed to do such and such thing. Um, and what fiat money does is it adds a lot of rent seekers and it's sort of like a backdoor rent seeking. The examples that I've been giving you are very explicit, right? Like, okay, you, you're not allowed to cross this bridge until you pay me or something like that. And you might not even have built that bridge, but you know, you, you, uh, force people to pay on the way or something like that. Um, the rent seeking that, uh, that I'm talking about ends up being uh, as a result of fiat money, because every time fiat money is printed, you are essentially stealing from everybody else that has that currency. And that money is funding a lot of needless bureaucracy. So a lot of bureaucracy it doesn't add value to anybody. It's basically kind of like a jobs program for people that are, royal to, uh, that are loyal to a regime or something like that. Um, and there's a significant amount of people uh, in the economy today that are not providing a good or service that's necessary to anybody. It's just sort of collecting money, stealing from everybody else while, you know, while not providing <laughs> while not providing anything of value. And that's unfortunately become more prominent Uh like the last uh, 60 or 50 years or so since we've been on a pure uh, fiat standard, 
And it happens at every level and it's, it's an unfortunate reality and it's almost something that people strive to now, right? Like this is, this explains to a large degree, the popularity of altcoins. It's, I want to do as little work as possible and I want to make the most amount of money. And if you have those two goals, then you are going to be so attracted to rent seeking. And this, this has become sort of like the alternate American dream. Right. Like where people want to want to want to go into an office, do no work and get collect a paycheck. And there are way too many um, places where th this is tolerated because of this ability to steal money from everybody else. Maybe it started from a four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss or something. <laughs> <laughs> and from, from an individual perspective, you, you shared in this book that we've reached a point where rent seekers outnumber productive individuals who contribute mm -hmm. to success Ashley. And this mm -hmm. has led to our society into mass depression. And how do, you, mm -hmm. how do you draw the lines between the two, like rent seeking mentality and depression? Yeah. Because you just said if the al alternative American dream is to work less and make the mm -hmm. most amount of money, isn't that isn't rent seeking will hypothetically make them happier well hypothetically but you know like i i'm a christian I, i'm a spiritual person i i kind of understand that the soul matters too you you might get everything that you say you want like physical uh, physical needs and things like that but some of the richest people are the most depressed now why is that uh it's because they're not doing anything meaningful. And, uh, you know, if you if you look at like the last 50 years, the vast majority of people that have made a lot of money, they're either in real estate or finance, right? Like the really rich people, they're all. And guess what? Those are the places where people have been trying to store value. And so they, you know, people buy homes not because not to live in them because it's a good investment, right? Like it lets them keep the money that they've earned. Similar thing with equities, right? Like and and all sorts of hedge funds and things like that. It's it's an attempt to keep their money. So these people are not really make uh, providing anything uh any new good or service really. They're they're just helping people keep up with inflation. And if if you kind of know that you know, there, there's a part of you that's like, okay, am I, am I like a leech, right? Like imagine yourself like as an investment banker on Wall Street that just made $200 million off of like a foreign exchange trade on 100x leverage. And now you can afford a new house in the Hamptons. Okay, great. Uh, what did I do again? How did I make the world better? What, 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 what value did I provide society? Actually, there was a loser on the other side of the trade. That person's probably getting fired, right? Like there, there's... Um, and you know, the government might have to bail out that firm because of the trade that I made that made me this, this much money. Like, can you even un quantify what, what, what you've done? Of course, like part of you knows this. And this is why, so, like, uh, you know, I, I talked to a lot of friends that used to work on wall street and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, they, they drink so heavily, right? Like they're trying to you know, numb the, you know, voice inside of them telling them, you know what, you're, you're a leech and you're, you provide nothing good for society and you are doing something that is taking advantage of other people. And they like, they want to drown out that voice. They want to drown that out. And of course it, it leads to depression. Uh, so in a, in a sense, yeah, rent seeking from a very superficial perspective does sort of get you to your goals, but 
that's not enough. And I, I, I think this is why we have epidemic levels of depression and like, you know, binge drinking and, and like drugs and psychedelics and all of this stuff. Like people escape to that stuff when their normal life is not meaningful. And unfortunately, that's uh, that's the case for too many people. Yeah, this reminds me of when people say addiction either it's alcohol mm -hmm. or drugs or even sex and it's not mm -hmm. really about the addiction itself it's they're trying to it's they're trying to escape from something and it's the something yeah. that's the, that's mm -hmm. the problem it's not addiction mm -hmm. itself so that brings to another kind of repeating idea in this book is the cantillon effect um, mm -hmm. adding to the point where the rich often get richer without mm -hmm. any adding any value so mm -hmm. can you elaborate on this effect like what is this and why mm -hmm. this is possible in the fiat world yeah, so the Cantillon effect is uh, is named after Richard Cantillon, and he was an Irish-French economist um, from the 18th century, early 18th century. So um, 1697, I think it was, was when the Bank of England was established as the world's first central bank. And at the time, the British pound was the reserve currency of the world. And Richard Cantillon observed as, you know, the central bank, uh, you know, did various things. And one of the observations that he made uh, was that the first spenders of the newly printed money from the central bank got all of the benefits. The people at the very end of this chain of, um, you know, debasement of the money uh, ended up getting screwed over, right? They, they were the ones that you know, uh, lost a lot of value. So, uh, you know, the, when we say Cantillon effect, what we mean is the people that benefit from the money printing. And these are ostensibly rich people, um, uh, specifically like at least in a, in a normal national context, it's large companies. Why? Well, because that's the most efficient way to get money out into the economy is to buy something from a large company and those large companies get access to these enormous loans, right? And they could scale up higher or something like that. And that money goes into the economy. So they, they benefit because they're the first spenders of the money. So imagine if there's only like $10 trillion in the world and an extra trillion dollar gets printed. Now, if it were distributed perfectly evenly, then the prices of everything, including your salary, would go up exactly 10%. That's that's how it would work. Uh, but it's not all even. And the people that get to spend it first get to spend it as if there's only $10 trillion in the economy. But the people at the end, they get to spend uh, as if it's $11 trillion. So the, the, the people at the end are screwed over uh, at the uh, by, by the people at the beginning, and unfortunately, uh, you know the the people that benefit are the people that have access to loans. Um, so, if you are a large corporation, you can get hundreds of millions of dollars in the commercial paper market uh, in loans, and this is all money created out of nothing. Uh, but even individuals, if you if you're uh, looking for a home, if you're uh, you know shopping for a home, you get a mortgage for you know, however many uh, dollars, but that that's also money printed for your benefit, right? Like it didn't exist before. It comes into existence for you so that you can afford that house. 
So in a sense, uh, if you're in a Western country, if you have access to mortgages, you're actually benefiting from the Cantillon effect. The people that are getting screwed, it's the people that don't have access to loans, that don't have access to any any of this stuff. If you're in the United States, you have access to something, right? Like even if it's uh, you know, a payday loan or something like that, there are people in, th- uh, in developing countries that have nothing. They have zero of this. And they're the people that are the most screwed by the Cantillon effect. It's the, you know, black market merchant in North Korea, right? Like they, the dollar is used there for uh, black market trade and their savings is getting debased and they, they are at the absolute end of the Cantillon effect. So they're screwed. But, you know, the but the people at the front of the line, the investment banker that gets, you know, 100x leverage, you know, that's that's a lot of money that's being printed for their for their benefit. They 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 get to benefit at the expense of everybody else. For sure. And I find this effect so profound because it applies for both on both individual levels and on a mm. national level, especially mm. when the global economy is so connected and the US being the top dollar top mm-hmm. dollar in the world um mm-hmm. you 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 see the individuals getting kind of screwed up because of all the debts created in the society just as mm-hmm. a regular individual and then you also see countries that are like third world countries the only countries that are relying mm-hmm. on imf relying on large mm-hmm. institutions to save them in dollars but mm-hmm. sell them sell themselves mm-hmm. at the same time and get mm-hmm. kind of never able to get out of it in a way mm. if it wasn't for bitcoin um mm. there's no option for them to to just getting this debt getting further into debt and slavery as a nation um so i find this really really profound in, yeah in, i mean i call it monetary colonialism in the book uh, for yeah. a reason because it really is sort of controlling another country through mon- money yeah totally and how do you see bitcoin as a potential solution to address this yeah, so the like traveling around the world and like uh, you know talking to a lot of Bitcoiners in different places, it, what what became clear with sort of this IMF and international monetary order that we have currently is that the U.S. weaponizes its money, <laughs> and we uh, it you know the Fed and the government are supposed to be independent or whatever, but that's not the case at all. Um, and you can you can see it because the places where money breaks and you can tell it breaks because you get hyperinflation, those almost always happen to be the countries that piss off the United States. Right. So you, you look at Argentina, you look at Lebanon, you look at Turkey, you look at uh, Egypt like they, these are not necessarily places that have been friendly with the U.S. or getting on their program about Ukraine and woke agenda and stuff like that. So when when you're not in alignment with the U.S., you are not getting a bailout. But if you're Western Europe, if you're Japan, if you're Taiwan, if you're South Korea, if you're Singapore, you are going to get that bailout, right? Like, uh, and and this bailout comes in the form of you know central bank uh, currency swaps or swap lines or something like that, and those help basically to strengthen your currency. So the the U.S. central bank will print money on your behalf as as another central bank so that you can defend the peg that you have for your currency. And th- this is a way in which you control those other countries, because guess what? All right. We are going to have this war in Ukraine. You better you better like, you know, you, we're, we're going to pass out pass out this collection plate. You better put something in there or else, you know. 
we're 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 gonna uh, we're gonna have to have some words here. Um, th- this is this is what happens: is that foreign policy is dominated by the money, and uh, not a lot of people really get how that all works. It's just that okay, my government always just does what the U.S. says because we are perfectly aligned and we have the same values. Uh, no, no, not at all. In fact, the the values that you supposedly espouse are on the complete other end in a lot of these conflicts, right? Uh, and and this this is this is what happens is uh, this monetary colonialism uh, it is essentially ruled by the dollar hegemony. Now, how do you get? Uh, how does Bitcoin change things? Well, first of all, the dollar isn't dominant, and uh, it, you know under a Bitcoin standard, it's you know nations trading with each other, uh, and you know that's not to say that uh, like everything is going to be hunky dory, far from it, but. You you have bilateral trading relationships instead of the U.S. being sort of the implied third party in any any like you know relationship between two countries. Instead of having to go through the U.S. with the dollar, um, you know they're they're going to be nations that just like trade with each other and stuff like that. Uh, instead of these multilateral like general agreements, right? Like oh let's let's have NAFTA or GATT or whatever. These are all multilateral agreements where. Everybody comes together. It really, it's just, okay, U.S. is going to dominate everything and we're going to tell everybody else how it is. Um, it's, it's going to be much more, okay, like, let's do what's good for my country. And, you know, like, it's, it's trade uh, that benefits everybody instead of a particular single entity that gets to dominate the discussions and pick winners and losers and stuff like that. So I think international relations changes quite a bit because there's uh, it's it's a lot more bilateral uh, rather than like dominated by the U.S. Um, that said, there is something called Pax Americana, which I mentioned in the book about how the U.S., essentially enforces peace around the world. And in particular, that has been very good for trade. So you have, uh, you know, like, you know, the shirt I'm wearing right now was probably produced in like Malaysia or something, you know, um, the, uh, you know, the electronics probably in China and, you know, the, the actual, uh, uh, you know, raw material maybe dug up from Africa or something like that. It's a, it's a it's a completely global world, and that trade is enforced essentially by Pax Americana by the U.S. monetary uh, domination. So, like, how does that change under a Bitcoin standard? Because you like how how do you guarantee safety of these like very slow ships that do all you know that ship all of this stuff like they're. Like if you're at war, like none of none of that ever makes it to the other side. They're they're just so big and so slow and such easy targets uh, that under a world war scenario, uh, scenario like none of that like is able to go go through. So some some of that I I think changes as well. It's not it's not quite as cheap to do these international like one world global things, but. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, under a Bitcoin standard, you get much less domination by the U.S., much more um, enterprise, free enterprise, much more fairness for developing countries, a lot uh, less debt available and, you know, countries having to build themselves up um, rather than trying to get aid or something like that. 
Yeah, I guess one of the biggest thing about this is at least Bitcoin obviously is not going to magically fix everything just mm -hmm. in a wimp, but at, le at mm -hmm. least it start to allow individuals and nations to have autonomy. And mm. when it comes to what do you want to do with that autonomy, that's your choice. <laughs> but before that, you were a slave, right? So that, mm -hmm. that's definitely the start of things. It's not, it's not the end of things, it's the start of things. So mm -hmm. we really should, the Bitcoin standard, it's not the end. It's not destination. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a start, really, for mm -hmm. both individuals and, and nations. And you say this in the book that in the fiat economy, you must make money twice, once mm -hmm. to earn it and once to keep it. I think this is mm -hmm. the key point to explain the fundamental structure of how the fiat framework works. So can mm -hmm. you elaborate on the concept of making money twice in a fiat economy? <laughs> yeah, so certainly you, you trade your labor for some money. Uh, most people do, or maybe you're an entrepreneur and you sell goods and services and you make a profit. All right, so you have this money. Well, what do you do with the money? If you keep it in dollars, you're getting pretty much 0% on your bank account. Then, uh, then you're losing to inflation. Well, what is inflation? Typically, uh, the, a modern economist defines inflation as uh, your purchasing power of goods and services. So uh, the CPI, for example, is published by uh, the Gov uh, Bureau of Labor, uh, BLS, I guess, uh, Labor and Services. And they, they say it's right around 3.8%. I think they published the new number today and saying, okay, well, uh, it increased 3.8% from last year. Okay, so if it increased, if we just use the CPI number, that means that if you had $100 a year ago and you kept it in a bank, now that that hundred dollars only buys like ninety seven dollars worth of ninety seven ninety six dollars worth of stuff, and you compound it over many years, and soon it, it it like goes to nothing, right? But that's not even the whole story because three point eight percent is the number that the government publishes to make it look like it's much less than it is. Because if you look at the classical definition of inflation, which is the rate of monetary expansion, then we have data for that. We can see the M2 money supply in 1959, it was $289 billion. 63 years later, or 64 years later, it is somewhere in the neighborhood of $23 trillion, something like that. If you annualize that over 60 years, that's about 7% a year. So that means really you're losing 7% a year and 7% a year over a decade is half your stuff is gone, right? That's, that, that's what's happening to your money. So if you want to keep your money, right, uh, the, the government's going to take 7% from it no matter what, right? That, that's how you have to look at it. It's every year, if you keep it in dollars, they take 7% away. Or you can work on uh, on saving that money, right? To to put it into an asset that's keeping up with that seven percent. And this this is something I point out in the book. Uh, every investment manager, every financial consultant, their benchmark is seven percent, and it's not a coincidence because that's the rate of monetary uh, expansion. So if you keep it at seven percent, you're just keeping up with inflation, and that that's what uh, that's what you have to do. And uh, in order to keep up with that 7%, you either have to pay a financial advisor and most of like with fees and stuff, you're, you're making less than that. So you're just losing money a little slowly, uh, a little slower. Um, 
if you're if you're doing your own research, well, that's labor that you're putting into keeping your money, right? Like, and like uh, particularly the two savings vehicles that most people use are stocks and real estate. How much effort is it to go buy a house, right? How much effort is it to go and find out all the things that are wrong with it? How much effort is it to go research a stock? How much effort is it to figure out, okay, where are they positioned in the economy, right? And this is, this is what I mean when I say that you have to make your money twice. And you're forced to be on this fiat treadmill where you have to run to stay in the same place. And that's, uh, that, that's like energy and effort uh, from some of the most productive people oftentimes, right? Like if you've made a lot of money, maybe you provided a very good uh, good or service into the economy and people are rewarding you for it by buying your stuff. Well, now you have to, instead of providing them even more good stuff, you're having to go and try to save your money, right? And th this, this is the real perniciousness of fiat money. It takes away the productivity of individuals, of people that can contribute something good and instead focuses them on the money. It's, it's, it's really kind of a lose-lose situation. That's so true, because I oftentimes get asked, like, how did I grow conviction into Bitcoin? Uh -huh. And one of one aspect, I never really share this, but um, uh -huh. one aspect of it is that because I'm lazy, it's because I don't <laughs> want to make money and having to invest it in a way that's productive because I'm, I'm not a numbers person, I'm not a technical person, and mm -hmm. I'm not even technically a researcher personality. It's, it's very daunting for me to having to go through these steps and Bitcoin offers me a safe haven for me to just do it, buy it once and huddle and just forget about it. And I want that simplicity so bad um, to the point that the, the conviction goes comes easily. Um, so it's 100% true and beautifully you've demonstrated this. And I've you're absolutely right. Like the labor and energy you put into trying to save that money and keep mm -hmm. that money, it's chores. It's, it's definitely... <laughs> Having and to it's make it much twice. better used like doing something that you like or something oh, that yeah. you're good 100%. at, you know. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but unfortunately, every rich person, if you talk to any rich person, this is what they end up obsessed with, right? It, look, talk to anybody that's made money, and it's like just ask them about their investments, and they will go off for like 30 minutes because this is what they're focused on now. Now that they've made their money once, they have to make their money twice, right? Like they have to put all this time and effort into uh, in, into keeping their money. And it, it's interesting what you said about kind of uh, being lazy, right? Like uh, of, of not wanting to deal with it. I think that's most people, right? Like it, you don't want to deal with, uh, you know, managing it. You, you just want it to be there. And, and that's how it used to be. Like there, there was this sort of uh, archetype of the gold loving miser, right? Like they just hoarded all their gold and just, you know, like that, that's all they wanted. They just wanted more gold and stuff like that. Um, even, even like ancient mythology of like the dragon and the gold, right? Like they, the dragons are always hoarding gold and, and things like that. You know, the idea was that you did like these people were foolish because they were concentrating so much on protecting their wealth. Well, you, you already have a good protection <laughs> against it, but I, I, I guess in a sense, they, they were protecting it from thieves and robbers. Um, you know, in, in a sense, we're, we're the same now because we have to protect it from the government from taking it from us through investment and things like that. Things like that. 
Yeah, totally.、Uh, let's shift gears and talk about love. And in this book, where you elaborated on fiat wars' impact on an individual level, you shared quote: "Society has created intimate, productive family bonds for rent-seeking political connections, and we're paying the price."、Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean by this? And explain how do you see these dynamics playing out? Yeah. So unfortunately,、um, we've grown really dependent on、uh, on bringing consumption forward, right? <laughs> on debt, right? That's what that is. It's bringing consumption forward. I want, I want something.、Uh, I'm gonna get it now, and I am willing to be enslaved for some amount of time in order to pay that off.、Um, the natural model of doing things is to save. And then buy it when you have enough money.、Right? Like that seems very logical, but so few people, so few companies, so few governments, so so few anybody like do that, right? Like they 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 don't do that. They they just spend now and get enslaved later.、Um, and that that has、uh, degraded a lot of bonds because it used to be that you would depend on other people、uh, for. Support and things like that. Instead, you you have this thing called debt that's available pretty much to anyone at any time. So you don't make those bonds or relationships. You're not dependent on your family or your community.、Uh, if you're dependent on anything, it's the corporation that you work for, and that's it. And they are probably the most impersonal and like、uh, ruthless and sociopathic. Sort of entity that you can think of, like they will fire you on a moment's notice for any reason, and give you all kinds of rules that don't make any sense. Like they, they, that, that's the kind of like、uh, community that you're in.、Uh, whereas in the past, you used to have a family, a community, a tribe. You know, like so, somebody somewhere where you belong, and that's how you made、uh, you made stuff、uh, and created things and built the community. Is You, all right. How do I fit into this community? What can I do that's beneficial for this community? What 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 can I make that would、uh, that would help them? And that was how you got into、um, you know that 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 was sort of like the social aspect of who you were, but that's been twisted and made into a very、um, strange kind of thing, right? Like very.、Um, Very、uh, shallow kind of thing,、uh, and that's that's an unfortunate reality. But that's 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 what a lot of people,、uh, you know, they they don't really experience true、uh, like a community anymore because of that. And love is one of those things that's been debased as a result. And how do you see Bitcoin plays into this dynamic and potentially prevent us? From going further down this slippery slope. Well, what Bitcoin does is it lets you,、um, you know, have to. It, it basically makes you provide a good or service instead of rent seeking, and you don't have this ubiquitous debt, so you can't bring consumption forward. You have to save, and you you have to provide something for other people. So you can't just consume and be enslaved, which is the fiat model. You have to provide something that other people want. And honestly, like that's very satisfying. I think to the soul that, and in a way that most people haven't really experienced. When you when you provide a good or service to the market, and they really like it, or they they appreciate it, and they want more of it, 
like you feel useful, right? Like so much of de depression is just feeling useless. Like, like you're not doing anything that's significant or uh, affecting anybody. But you know, a, a lot of people in manual labor don't don't have that because it, it it's so so obvious the the you know contribution that you're making. So I, I think what Bitcoin does is it makes it, it makes all of the value exchange very direct. So, you know, if you work for a corporation, you maybe are like, say you work in HR at Kellogg, you know, or something like that. Like, what are you actually doing? Well, I, you know, I'm uh, here's how I'm providing value. I'm uh, hiring for more employees that might be uh doing more things for the accounting department, helping us to save money, which ultimately makes our food cheaper and more affordable for a household eventually that that might eat it, although they might get diabetes. Now, I don't know. Whatever it is, they uh, it's very indirect, right? It's like three or four steps removed from the actual value being provided. Uh, with and, and it's really, a lot of it is just justification or... Um, uh, or it's rationalization of what they want to believe because they might be just pure rent seekers and they're just sort of trying to justify that they they are making money at all. Um, but, you know, when, when it's direct, you know, when you're dealing with the market, you know, it's unmistakable when somebody likes your stuff because they buy it from you. Uh, and it's, it's not you're and they're doing it voluntarily. So there's no compulsion involved. There's no theft involved. So, that I think uh, is very different, and it causes closer bonds. It causes, um, you know, a, a more close knit community, and I think that's that's where we're leading uh, towards is, you know, a, a society not based on debt but based on savings, right? People people wanting to go and save up to go buy something, um, and people valuing each other's work product and and so on. And you've also made a case where people are seeing, seeking support from authorities these days, from other uh, than their rather than their family and communities. And you mm -hmm. recognize mm -hmm. that independent people are loyal and will vote to keep the government in power. So, given mm -hmm. how people depend on the functioning of the fiat system to meet their financial needs, do you see this play out in the long term between people defending the status quo versus people who work towards a Bitcoin standard? Oh yeah, absolutely. And there there are already people defending the status quo. You could you could you could see them on Twitter all the time. They're they're like no coiners that are railing against Bitcoin. None of their critiques make any sense, but the, they are doing it because they're establishment shills. They're getting paid by these people. They're just as dependent as uh you know the the worst rent seeker in many ways, right? Like if you're Paul Krugman and you always just say what the government wants uh, wants to do anyway, then yeah, you're 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 an establishment shill. You're a rent seeker. You're going to defend the system. Um, the way it ends up playing out usually is that you know as you sort of enter hyperinflation, um, you know, well, first of all, you you enter into that hyperinflation because you employ so many sort of partisan hacks or shills or rent seekers or whatever. Uh, the, the way that happens is you hire a bunch of people, maybe to government positions, maybe so heavily subsidized positions or something like that. And those people, um, you know, get money printed from nothing. They spend it into the economy and that increases the supply of money, making everything a little more expensive. So 
At that point, all of those people are going to demand the raise. Why? Because they're not getting paid enough to go buy all of this stuff. So the government gives them more of a raise. They spend the money into the economy. The mo- uh, you know things get a little more expensive. They ask for another raise. And th- this is sort of like the perpetual cycle that like fuels hyperinflation in many countries. I found out that this was certainly the case in Lebanon. It's starting to happen in Egypt. It's starting to happen in Turkey as well. Uh, but you know, you 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 have to keep it going, right? Like these people are not happy getting paid a very low, very low salary for all the amount of work that they're doing on your behalf to sort of support you. So uh, you know, you you get into this hyperinflation at a certain point. Um, you know, they, the government can't keep up, and it's usually because of a backstop currency. If you go to Lebanon, you pay for every you know pay for anything above $20 in, in dollars, right? Because if you use a local currency, first of all, the highest uh, node is 100,000 Lebanese pounds. And it's right now like 96,000 Lebanese pounds to a dollar. So each each bill is worth like $1. You're, you're not going to be able to buy very much. And no one wants to count out that much. Uh, but yeah, anything above $20, you just use dollars and then you get change in lira. That's that's what people do now. Um, so when you have that backstop currency, well, it, it reduces the cantillon effect of the money that you're printing because people have moved to something more sound, right? So, uh, so the way uh, the way my uh, friend describes it is, you know, there's only so much cantillon juice you can squeeze out of that lemon. And at a certain point, you run out of cantillon juice to squeeze because people start using something else. And and that's that's where uh, that's when like uh, you know you can't afford like the raises aren't working uh, for a lot of these shills or whatever, and they stop working. Right? <laughs> it's like why I'm not getting paid. I'm not going to go do this. I, I don't care what you tell me. Yeah, fine. Stop paying me. I don't care. Um, and that, that that's what ends up happening. So if if you if you're not doing that, and think about all of the bureaucracy, right? So this includes like tax collectors, right? The people that are actually doing the collection of the various taxes, they're not getting paid enough. They're not going to, they're not going to go and like, you know, uh, go to a population and try to collect taxes on stuff, especially as you're hyperinflating because people are incentivized to delay paying their taxes as long as possible. Because if you delay it, then it's going to be like 30% less, right? Like, so they're going to delay it as long as possible. So you have to chase all of these people down. What would you rather do? You're not getting paid enough. Ah, you know what? It's it's kind of a rent-seeking position anyway. I'm, I'm just going to sit here, write a couple of emails and, you know, call it a day. Instead of like ruthlessly going after tax collection. This, this is what happens. So what happens? Well, your revenue from your tax collection goes down. Now you have to print even more. So you get into this really crazy hyperinflation loop and you lose all of the people that were like advocating for you and everyone just sort of turns uh, gradually then suddenly towards this other standard. So I think that's what's going to happen. You you do have a lot of establishment chills, a lot of people on the opposition that want the status quo and so on. But it is inevitable that those people go away because it just costs too much. And we have this backstop in Bitcoin. Most other countries use the U.S. dollar as the backstop to their currency. Well, when 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 you have Bitcoin as that backstop, you can't print more Bitcoin. What are you going to do? 
Yeah, yeah. And this this debasement, um, like you explained thoroughly in the book, that are happening in all areas in in the world. And one、mm -hmm. aspect you mentioned that's particularly like where it's life with Bitcoin. So we talk with like people、uh, talk about the the human aspect. So I'm particularly interested in the areas where. Individuals can be affected the most, and one of them is education,、um, mm. and is another aspect. Individuals are heavily influenced under the fiat mindset, especially、mm -hmm. college education. Like I've been to, like I grew up in the fiat standard, like most people, and I've went to two of the most prestigious universities in the world, and.、Mm -hmm. So far, working in Bitcoin, my fancy degree has done me zero. Like I, it's it's. I have mixed feelings about this, to be honest, because the、mm -hmm. amount of time and resources my family and myself put into these getting these degrees, and the fact that I'm now able to put them in use to the slightest <laughs> in the Bitcoin world, is giving me mixed feelings. So, the, but here the question the question here is,、uh, you talk a lot about how the, the fiat mindset is. In encouraging and training rent seekers in our society,、mm -hmm. but what is the alternative? Like for people who are just in their teenage years and thinking about、mm -hmm. if they should go to college or not, like what options do they have? Because right now we're we're not going to the Bitcoin standard right away. It's it's、mm -hmm. no matter how how much we want it to happen right away, it's just not going to happen right away. So what、mm -hmm. choice do they have?、Uh, because if you have a solid educational background, it still provides you some good. Advantage in the job market if you don't enter the Bitcoin、uh, world right away, right? So, what would you、yeah. recommend people do these days、um, regarding college education? Yeah, so it's it's uh, very um, it, it it's interesting you use the language that you do because it does give you advantage an advantage on jobs, right? Especially when you're right out of school. Those are jobs. What, what's a job? It's being a cog in a corporate machine. Now, if you want that, then that might make sense. But it's increasingly getting to be a terrible investment because you're having to pay so much money for so little, and the degrees themselves have been debased significantly over the last fifty years. I mean, the, a, a degree from Harvard from like nineteen fifty-five. Is worth way more than a degree from Harvard now. Although you know, I mean, Harvard because of its selection criteria, like you, you know, you're getting a pretty smart person. But it meant more back then because they actually gave out C's, right? Like that, that was the average grade. Now, now the average grade is like an A minus, right? Or, or, or like even an A in some some、uh, some of these、uh, colleges. Doesn't mean as much to have graduated because they'll graduate almost anything.、Mm -hmm. What what、uh, what this means is that、uh, you know there there's so much rent seeking within college education that a lot of families are looking for alternatives, and I think you should、uh, because your goal shouldn't be to get a job because ultimately that's going to have a significant rent seeking component. I I think what what young people should focus on. Is what young people have focused on for centuries before the modern fiat era. Go make something of yourself, right? Go make things for people, right? Like make a good or service that the market wants. Provide value. That's what you should be thinking about. Okay, how can I? And you know, everyone's different. You know, you you have different uh, uh, skills and abilities, and what what you can provide is probably not what the person next to you can provide. But that's your advantage, and that's that's what you ought to be doing. 
And unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, you and I are Asian. So, you know, there, there's this like Asian, like, you know, uh, um, push towards something more certain, right? Like, uh, go take the well-trodden path towards doctor, lawyer, or engineer or something like that. Um, I, I, I can understand why parents like that because it's, it looks like more certain. It's certainly a lot harder, but you know, it, it, it's at least a road that they can see the road of entrepreneurialism of doing something on your own is a road that you can't see. It's, it's the frontier. And this is part of why I wear this cowboy hat, right? You, you want to go out into the frontier. The frontier is where all the action is happening. That's where all the, uh, all the value is being added and stuff, because in a fiat world, a well-trodden path is a significantly rent seeking path. Right? There are rent seekers all along the way. There are gatekeepers all along the way. There are people that will reject you for almost anything. And unless you have exactly the, uh, the qualities that they're looking for, they will reject you. And, you know, it, it, might, it might be something as simple as, oh, you, you like Trump. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're going to, that's not going to fly around here. And, and, you know, like they, they put it in other terms or whatever, you're representing the company or whatever, whatever. But, you know, in a, in a, in a free market, like none of that stuff matters, right? You, it's whether you provide a good or service that the market wants. And if you do, then they will pay. Um, so I would say that that's the direction that you should be going in. And barring that, like go do something that is directly helping people. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I was, um, reading about how the UPS strike, right? Like, uh, ended and now UPS drivers are getting paid $170,000 a year, right? Like that's the average UPS driver. I think they deserve every penny. I think they deserve every penny because they are doing something that is clearly adding value. Whereas, you know, the wall street bro, that's, that's getting paid uh, to 20 million in a bonus. Not, not at all obvious what they're providing. The market has become more rational because of the higher interest rate environment. And I think that's going to be the case as we go into a Bitcoin environment. The, the rent-seeking jobs that everybody wants, the, the you know, desk and email job, right? Like you send three emails a day and that's your job or something like that. Like those don't really add much value, right? Like, and therefore shouldn't get paid very much, right? Uh, it's crazy to me that all people want those like uh, these jobs that like aren't adding that much and will like take a significant discount almost to do it. I, I was uh, I read an interview from uh, the CEO of Waste Management, right? He was saying how he can't hire garbage truck drivers for ninety five thousand dollars a year. Not not a very difficult cognitively job, right? Like you, you're driving a truck. Just so few people want to do it. He can't find anyone to drive them for ninety five thousand dollars a year. But he's like, you know, but uh, you know, uh, uh, an MBA graduate from a mid tier uh, business school, I can hire them for sixty thousand a year, and I can hire them all day long. Like, this is what the world has come to, is that they, people want to be rent seekers so bad that, that they'll take so much less money. So in a sense, I think we should get towards like 
the actual skills that are valuable, right? And being a welder and being an electrician or a plumber or, you know, what, whatever, a baker or, you know, whatever. The, these are, and I, I think we're going to see more rationality in that regard. People that make things will make more money. And that's, that's the world we're going towards. So skate to where the puck is going and not where the puck is, right? Like the puck is going towards clear value adds. And you better know what that looks like if you're a young person. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I asked this question because this is a very important message. Like I did years mm -hmm. of waitressing and I loved it. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. so on your feet and very interactive. <laughs> uh, you don't have to think about it twice when you're when you clock off. You don't have to have mm -hmm. this mental dead dead way that's handing hanging off you. And I what I I'll, I'll add to that point. I think one of the very dangerous point about rent seeking and working in a rent seeking job is that it give you an illusion of power because mm. <laughs> you're the because you're the gatekeeper and you're like you can't pass yeah. until i say so and it gave yeah. you the illusion of power it gave you the illusion of control to the point that mm -hmm. you're willing to take sixty thousand dollars to be a entry-level mba role instead of <laughs> behind the whales of something that's real important for like ninety five thousand dollars right and it's, it's yeah. there's a people's um, perception of of things should change and i'm glad you mentioned this because this is I would, I, I don't have that opportunity anymore, but this would be the question mm -hmm. I would ask myself if I were a Bitcoiner that are 16, 17 years old debating what should I do in this fiat world and see the pointlessness mm -hmm. of going to colleges and <laughs> doesn't know what to, what argument I have to fight back. Um, all right. Um, any final thoughts you would like to share with our audience who will get the most of this um, new book? Uh, the people that I'm aiming it for are already Bitcoiners, right? I, I want you to see the corruption of fiat and I want you to really get more convicted in your uh, in the goodness that Bitcoin brings. Um, I am available on Twitter at Jimmy Song. I have a newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com. And yeah, please, um, yeah, check check it all out if, if you're interested. Yeah, um, so I got this from Amazon, so it's fairly straightforward. Um, thanks, for Jimmy, for joining. And I've certainly had a great time reading this book. I have to say, this is like the first ever time I get to read a book and actually talk to the author for the questions I had. So this has been really fun and uh, fulfilling. Thanks for your candid answer. And I really enjoyed the book. So definitely check it out. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for joining the show. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Here's uh, Life with Bitcoin and I'm your host Vivian Chang. We'll see you in the next episode.